Hey there, and thank you for tapping into this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. I'm going to start this episode with the definition, just to set some of the stage. Here it is. What is an industry? When people refer to this or that quote industry, what is the idea they're modeling with that? Well, it's a conglomeration of companies that sell products or services within a specific domain. For example, companies that sell birdseed could be in the home and garden industry, while those that sell dog food, the pet industry, so on and so forth. Now, musing for a moment, what could happen to an industry if the rules of where something could be made were artificially held in place? How would that industry, again, that conglomeration of companies, and the markets, which are nothing more than people and companies that are interested in purchasing that industry's goods, how would they react if such an artificial control was in place? Lucky for us, we don't have to look any further than America's domestic shipping industry, and more specifically the Jones Act, or the artificial control in place that mandates all ships being used to transport goods domestically be built in America and operated by mostly American crews. During this interview, we go into the reasoning when the act was put into place, subsequently how far the U.S. has fallen since the Industrial Revolution and shipbuilding, which then sets the stage for the modern pushback and general lazy obedience to the status quo and lack of political will on this topic. As my returning guest Colin Grabo details, forcing ships to be built only in America breeds a lack of specialization into the U.S. shipyards, which then means a lack of efficiency and a lack of standardization, which are all the hallmarks of not just better products, but reduced costs. As such, the U.S. builds a dizzyingly slow number of ships each year, despite the size of the water domestically and the wealth of the nation. To me, it's a really fascinating example around the idea of the role of government and how products get made and made well. Well, with all that, I'll bring us to our interview with Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, Colin Grabo. Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to listen to us on your streaming platform of choice, donate to the show, sign up for our mailing list, visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod from wherever you're listening. Enjoy! All right. Well, thank you again for uh, dealing with our scheduling shuffle to come back on. I uh, appreciate your time. Um, and thank you for coming on again. Uh, so today we're going to be focusing on the Jones Act and kind of unpacking what exactly that is. But um, before we do that, would you mind just introducing yourself? And then I have a quick question that's a, kind of setting us up like last time, and then uh, we'll dive into the, the subject matter. Uh, well, thanks for having me on once again. Uh, my name is Colin Grabo, and I am a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Awesome. And I imagine you're very busy at these time of days. Uh, <laughs> Always. Um, okay, so we had you on before, and I have a question I ask everybody when they first join, which is, uh, what do you do that makes you happy? And then the second one I like to ask if they're a returning guest is, what have you done recently that has made you happy? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, last time I 
I talked about, you know, my, my love of soccer, but another thing that, that makes me happy and something that I've been able to do since then has brought me happiness and I think will continue to bring me happiness is uh, I enjoy learning and just adding to my, you know, my level of knowledge. I think uh, I just enjoy trying to under, we live in a very complicated world and trying to better understand our world uh, is, is just a great intellectual exercise and brings a lot of satisfaction when you can uh, solve one of those uh, many, many riddles that are, that are around us and try to figure out why are things the way they are. And so I just say since then, uh, you know, recently I've continued to read, continue to learn, and uh, all that brings you more satisfaction. And, and one of the joys of getting older is you accumulate more knowledge, and I think it helps you to better understand the world we live in. So I'd like to think that every day I've a little bit closer to understand a little bit more about about the, the world in which we all live. I like that. Yeah, I, I, a big part of the reason I do this is because I enjoy learning so much. So I can definitely resonate with that. Uh, anything you've been learning about recently that uh, was particularly tantalizing? Oh, it just has all has to do with ships. Um, so <laughs> I'm sure we'll we'll get into that enough. So that's great. Um, okay, so today we're going to talk about, oh, by the way, I've been thinking a lot about our conversation about the, the sugar cartel. Uh, that's uh, just the, um, especially with more of the kind of uh, government programs continually getting bigger and bigger and yeah. bigger and, and kind of the um, second, third and unintended effects of those type of programs. So I, I appreciate you again for that. Um, also, I got to just say one more time. I love the title of that, a candy coated sugar cartel. I think it's, I think it's, it's very well pointed. Um, it's very humorous to a not so humorous subject. Um, so today we're going to talk about the Jones act. So I want to ask you first to just let me know what the Jones act is. And then I'm going to kind of do what I did last time and move out in concentric circles. Great. So the Jones act is the colloquial name applied to section 27 of the merchant Marine act of 1920. And this provision section 27 has four main provisions requirements and that's that for any vessel transporting goods uh, within the United States by water, it has to meet four conditions. And that's that the vessel has to be flagged and registered in the United States, just like you register your car in a certain state, that vessel has to be US registered as, to, as opposed to another country. It has to be uh, at least 75% US crewed with American citizens. The other 25% can be, I believe, permanent uh, residents, so green card holders. The vessel has to be at least 75% U.S. owned, and the vessel has to be built here in the United States, which is an extremely unusual provision because any other form of transportation, trucks, rail, pretty much anything does not have to be built in the United States. You can get it from wherever, but when it comes to things afloat, they have to be built here in the United States. Hmm. That's curious. So you said that 1929, is that what you said? 1920. 1920. Okay. Yes. What was the so own it? Turn, turned 100 years, uh, June of last year, turned 100 years old. And the bill's coming due. Uh, what was the onus of, of this? So it's it's 1920, the World War One is just ended, like, and it, the kind of the, the credit market's heating up and international trade. Um, I think I think there's a graph I looked at once and it was like international trade or cross-Atlantic trade. Uh, pre-World War One and after, and it's, it, it exploded. So that's a little bit of the setting. So what was the onus of, of making it at then? So the impetus, so like I said, the Jones Act was one section of a much larger piece of legislation called the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. 
and had all these many different provisions. So what was the impetus for the Merchant Marine Act? And the, it was designed to do several things, but I think the biggest driver, the biggest impetus was simply the fact that, as you mentioned, the U.S. had just come out of World War I. During World War I, the United States did not have enough ships uh, to transport its troops and equipment uh, from the United States over to France. And so in response, we engaged in this crash shipbuilding program. Uh, the U.S. entered the war in 1917, April 1917, if I recall correctly. Um, you know, ships can't be built overnight. It takes a while to both, you know, expand the shipyards, uh, get them up to speed, and then build the actual ships. So I think a majority of the ships built for use in World War I were actually completed after November of 1918 when the armistice was signed. Anyway, the point is, the United States found itself with this huge fleet of ships that just built during World War I. They were all owned by the government. And the question was, well, what do we do with them? So that's what the purpose of, World War, of, of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, the, the biggest, one of the biggest goals of it was to figure out what to do with all these ships, how do we dispose of them and get them off the government's hands. But while they were at it, they thought, well, since we're dealing with this, you know, Merchant Marine uh, ship issue, you know, why don't we also look at kind of the, the issue more broadly of, of, of factors impacting the U.S. merchant marine? And uh, there were some shipping companies in Seattle, Washington, and they thought, well, this is a good opportunity for us to get our voice heard. And they were very upset about the fact that Americans who want to send goods to Alaska, instead of using American ships out of Seattle, they were sending their goods by train or truck up to Vancouver, Canada, putting them on foreign ships in Vancouver and going to Alaska. Now, why were they doing this, even though, you know, Vancouver's further away? It's because foreign ships were much cheaper than American ships. And so these shipping companies in Seattle said, well, we don't want to compete with these foreign ships. And they went and testified before Congress in 1920. And the person running the uh, committee was Senator Wesley Jones of Washington State, for whom the Jones Act is named. And they said, look, you know, we, uh, we hate all these uh, foreigners taking business from us. Uh, we don't have to compete against foreign ships in the Alaska market. And we think it'd be a great idea if you amended existing language to uh, bar this from happening. And that's why Section 27 was included. If you look at the language of Section 27, it's basically like 85% the same as what these shipping companies proposed um, because U.S. shipping uh, you know, today as then was, it was very expensive. Or I should say then as today is very expensive and people were looking for a way around it. And it was basically trying to close a loophole that would deny Americans access to cheaper foreign shipping. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm going to come back to that, but I'm going to ask for a definition first. Um, what is uh, a merchant Marine? The merchant Marine is the commercial, commercial uh, shipping in the United States that it's considered, some have called the fourth arm of defense, you know, along with the Navy, Air Force, uh, and Army, because although it's commercial and civilian manned in time of war, it plays a crucial role. And that the United States, when we need to transport our bullets, our bombs, our cans of beans uh, to our troops all around the world, they rely on ships. And the US Navy doesn't have a huge number of transport ships. So they have to turn to the commercial sector to meet their needs. And that, that commercial sector is the US Merchant Marine, which is basically all the US flagged uh, ships. 
Ah, so if you are a U.S. flagged commercial ship and you're you're moving anything from Amazon cargo to coal, um, you are considered a member of the Merchant Marine. You are considered a member of the Merchant Marine. It's actually worth noting that um, you're aware that we have the different service academies, you know, the Air Force Academy, West Point for the Army and whatnot. There's also a U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York, and that is a considered a service academy, and it's funded by the federal government. And you know, students, uh, uh, you know, go there free, free of tuition. So it's treated in many ways the same as the U.S. military. So that kind of speaks to the significance that it plays, even though it's civilian and commercial. The 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 the, the role that it plays in U.S. military thinking. Yeah, that's fascinating. So. Um... Or do they actually like organize themselves in any type of chain that goes up to the Pentagon or any type of organization of that, or only in wartime does that kind of occur? So right now, uh, the U.S. the Merchant Marine is comes under the auspices of the U.S. Maritime Administration, which is part of the Department of Transportation. Mm. Um, and one of the interesting things about the Merchant Marine is so on the one hand, it figures into U.S. military thinking and strategy. On the other hand, as I said, they're civilians. So a key difference is in wartime. Obviously, members of the military have to report for duty. It's, it's their contractual obligation to. Members of the Merchant Marine are not. They did not sign a contract saying that I'm a member of the U.S. military. Uh, so there's kind of this expectation that they will, but there's no, there, there's no uh, ironclad assurance that they will. Uh, and, and so right now, I think one unfortunate aspect of our current policy is you can only kind of guess, you can say, well, we know how many merchant mariners there are, but in case of war, how many can we really count on? And that's, you can only really guess what that is. Uh, because, and, and that's, I'm not trying to question anybody's patriotism here or willingness to serve, but sometimes you know, life circumstances just interfere and it's, it's hard for people for various duties, for various reasons to leave whatever they're doing and go you know, perform wartime service. So, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting situation that they straddle. They're, they have, you know, kind of one foot in both worlds, the commercial and, and the military. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, especially considering, I mean, like, so I, I come from a military family, so there's a different mindset that you have when you sign up to be in the army or, you know, any branch of service, like you, you're, you're kind of accepting of certain, um, complexities when it comes to your, your family life, or even just your life in general and how much it can get turned upside down. Uh, where if you're just, like I said, you know, shipping Amazon freight and then all of a sudden you get called up, that's, that's a bit, I would imagine that's a bit confusing or, or tenuous, um, especially considering like there hasn't been any attacks on the homeland that, I mean, you can say in September 11th, sure, but uh, like true attacks, like wartime attacks in, in quite some time. Um, so this is this is probably a pretty foreign concept that it can even be, you know, called up well- like mind though that uh you know given u.s foreign policy being what it is it doesn't require an attack on the u.s homeland for the united states to go to war or for the merchant marine to be uh you know called upon um we have examples you know uh most recently you know the afghanistan and iraq war uh campaigns uh those you know required equipment and uh, military supplies to be transported to Iraq and, you know, to, I think, Europe, where they were put on trains to eventually get to where they were needed in Afghanistan or whatever. And those required ships. And so merchant mariners were, you know, called upon. Uh, we also have uh, one of the better known examples in the last in recent decades is the Persian Gulf War, 1990-91, uh, you know, huge military buildup, you know, I think half a million soldiers and those guys all need equipment, supplies and, yeah, U.S. Merchant Marine uh, figured prominently there as well. 
That's fascinating. I had no idea about that. Um, the analog that I was thinking about was the uh, inactive ready reserve, if you're familiar with them. So that, yes. so like you get out of the military and depending on your contract in terms of service or you know, uh, various different complexities therein, um, you can get placed into this inactive ready reserve, which means in, in, tac- in times of um, strain or stress on the, you know, the numbers of military that there is, um, because of someone's expertise, um, you know, it could take nine months to a year to two years to train people, depending on what their expertise is. Um, you know, we just think like, oh, you're a communications guy in a unit. And we think like, that's not that much of training, but those are people actually have about a year of training because they're actually hacking satellites to, to make those type of things happen. Um, so in those situations, if you are an officer or some type of highly technical individual, um, you'll get actually redrafted, even though technically you've been out of the army for you know whatever the amount of time is. Um, which is similar to me in, 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 well, in the Iraq war, when we were having the surge, uh, and all of that, that was one of the instances where the, these individuals were historically for the, you know, past, you know, some decades have never been called on and almost was looked at as a, uh, you know, you're in the act inactive ready reserve, but you're not going to get called on. And then all of a sudden they were, um, so it's interesting to me. That was the kind of the analog, but, uh, I had no idea about that. It, it, it makes sense logistically, right. Um, there's like a great quote. I think it was Marcus Aurelius, uh, one of the ancient generals, um, where they said that war is logistics. It's not battles. Um, so it makes sense to me that you would want to have uh, this type of system in place because you need bullets. You need, I mean, you need food, you need medical supplies. You need, sometimes you just need clean water, um, which you would need to, re- you know, ships is obviously like in a lot of places, the easiest way to get that in there. Um, so that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, okay, so thank you for framing up what a uh, merchant marine is um, and shedding some light on that complexity I had no idea about. Um, so going back to Vancouver and the 19, 1920, um, so there's this big buildup of excess ships um, that were built for wartime, um, while at the same time there's some emerging complexities with international markets, um, such, as, such as it is that uh, it's cheaper to use um, other uh, foreign ships and crews, uh, than it is to use Americans. Um, so kind of the, the special interest of that, uh, in Mr. Jones, the Senator from Washington, uh, as well as kind of, we're sitting on this supply of ships, um, let's write it into law. Um, how, how well did it work out in the beginning? Was it, was it a policy success? Um, and is it something that is kind of a holdover from like a, a law where it's, uh, you know, you can't have a crocodile tied up to a fire hydrant or something like that. And it just kind of has stayed in place. Uh, or is it something that has been nurtured to, to kind of take hold? Does that make it's sense? absolutely a law that um, it's, it's an old law that is stayed in place, um, I think, because various special interests have attached themselves to it and, and have, um, have a, an extreme self-interest in maintaining the status quo. It's useful to remember, as I, as I said before, the Jones Act was aimed at kind of tweaking or adjusting existing laws um, to keep out foreigners from the Alaska market. But U.S., you know, the Jones Act is a cabotage law. It, it applies to transportation within the United States and the abilities of foreigners to participate or not participate in that domestic commerce. Um, it, you know, people think the Jones Act is old because it's 100 years old, you know, almost 101 years old. But in fact, I think properly viewed, it's far older than that. U.S. cabotage laws go back to the very founding of our country. 
uh, back in, I believe, 1789, the first measure was passed. It was like the third act of Congress, I believe, that said um, foreign ships transporting goods in the United States, they're allowed to do it, but they're subject to, they were subject to extremely high taxes. So, you know, by law, they could transport goods within the United States, but on a de facto basis, once you factored in the taxes, it almost didn't make any sense. And then by 1817, uh, the U.S. just flatly said, no foreign ships are allowed to transport goods within the United States, period. Oh, and by the way, ships that operate in the United States, they also have to be built in the United States. Now, you may an argument you'll hear from pro-Jones Act supporters is, well, this just shows the wisdom of the founding fathers and the, the Jones Act reflects what they knew. And you know, just as the Constitution isn't a bad idea just because it's so old, neither is the Jones Act. But the context is entirely different between now and then. Back then, you know, I mentioned that U.S. shipping has become very expensive. So people were looking for these loopholes of ways to get around it, like going through Vancouver. Um, back then, that was it was the complete opposite. U.S. shipping and shipbuilding was some of the best in the world. Uh, that's not a big surprise. The 13 original colonies were all along the water. We had these big forests full of timber, perfect to build ships with. So we had people that were familiar with shipping, familiar with shipbuilding, had the, all the natural resources there to do it. Uh, in fact, the British, back when we were part of the British Empire, I think something like a huge percentage of the ships in the British fleet were built in the United States uh, in the British commercial fleet because the Americans were renowned as excellent shipbuilders. Well, all that is totally different today. We've gone from being some of the best shipbuilders in the world to some of the worst, uh, just as measured by the prices that we charge and how long it takes to build a ship. Uh, we've gone from being some of the least expensive, most efficient uh, shipping companies to, again, some of the least efficient, most expensive shipping companies. So some historians will even tell you that back then, these initial measures were cost-free because being forced to use an American-flagged, uh, American-built ship was no big deal because they were some of the cheapest anyway. Um, but you know, the, the world has definitely changed uh, for the worst in terms of U.S. shipping and shipbuilding. Now, instead of being forced to use some of the cheapest and best uh, shipping and shipbuilding, Americans are forced to use some of the most expensive ships in the world and some of the most expensive shipping in the world. Hmm, that's fascinating. Yeah, the context from the founding is is great, um, especially how that's unfortunate how it's being manipulated. But um, you know, I mean, the big basis of the economy for the, the colonies was sending goods elsewhere. So, I mean, that right there, shipping was the mode of transportation back then. Um, and uh, well, just like a, a sideways plug as far as like guns, germs and steel, kind of that kind of thing um, is, you know, the first colonies that came here in America before disease kind of took hold. Uh, a lot of the areas like Pennsylvania is always the, uh, the example I use. It's Latin for Penn's forest. Um, well, before disease kind of took hold and wiped out a lot of the indigenous groups, that was actually a lot of pra managed prairie land, which is so fertile that all of a sudden it exploded. So, you know, forest canopies may have been like 40%, you know, exploded to, you know, nearing 100%. Um, so then, you know, the first kind of travelogues you see, it's like, oh my God, there's great pasture land. And then the next travelogues that you see is, oh my God, there's all this great timber for shipbuilding. Um, it's something I've actually mentioned in, in a different interview. Um, but, you know, Pennsylvania or, you know, any of those type of coastal regions, um, had perfect timber for shipbuilding. Um, and it was something that both, you know, you know, uh, internationally was, uh, really encouraged. And I can understand from like a domestic, uh, stability point. And if you read some of like the founding fathers and even the, some of the federalist papers, 
sideways uh, mention it is the necessity to create an economy based off of this shipping because they wanted to not necessarily compete with these world powers in Europe, but be able to not be influenced by them to be able to have their own domestic uh, market because they saw that, well, hey, like if we are able to continually flow goods in and out of here, um, it's going to be you know in our advantage, which uh, back to like the, the Marine Marines, the US Marines, not or just merchant Marines, uh, they have in their song, like off the shores of Tripoli, which is also yep. the example of this. I always love the Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Yeah. Which is the U S ships. The Barbary that were in, pirates. Exactly. They were in the Mediterranean. were getting continually attacked until mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Jefferson sent over a, a brigade of Marines uh, to burn down Tripoli and, and kind of hold the, actually hold it's the a fascinating story. Yeah. To hold the pirates. Uh, he, he pirated the pirates and went from giving them a, you know, a, a tribute every year to the other way around, which is just, it's just fascinating. And also kind of goes to the, um, the, the nature of America has always been one to encourage commerce in this kind of international community, um, of, of ships and I mean, not necessarily shipping, but just, uh, trade, if you will, commerce, is, yeah, yeah sure. commerce and trade. Um, so it's interesting because, you know, back then it's, it, it, I could see it as a national security as well as, you know, from national security of, you know, making sure that we have enough ships to be able to, you know, defend ourselves, but also to not like that soft diplomacy of being able to have commerce. Well, um, sorry to interrupt, but you bring up yeah, a great point here because that's another key difference between the context of uh, then and now is that back then, not only did we have, you know, great shipbuilding, cheap shipping, uh, very competitive shipping, but also ships back then. Um, you know, during the Revolutionary War, during the War of 1812, the United States didn't have a huge fleet. We were a poor country. But one way you could compensate for that was you take these merchant ships, you put some cannon on them, and they could serve as privateers. Now, there's no such thing as a privateer today. We have, you know, the world's best Navy. We don't need to do that. It would be unfeasible, you know, to put cannon on a container ship. That would do nothing for you. Um, so that also just speaks to a completely different world that we inhabit today, uh, you know, versus then. Yeah. Incredible specialization versus, versus ad hoc being able to kind of keep up like the, you know, this is something I, I talk about a lot is that the bounds of technology has gone so off the rails in a way where, you know, like you can't take a warship, a warship is a warship. And sometimes by the time you get them on the, the water, they're already outdated, um, versus back then, you know, the, the, the delta between a commercial ship and a warship wasn't as large. Um, so being able to tool something is completely differently, which kind of goes even to your- And even within commercial shipping, because there used to be a time when, you know, cargo ships weren't that different. They were just ships that had a big hold in them. You just put whatever in there. And now even among- cargo ships, they're so specialized, so differentiated. You have liquefied petroleum gas tankers, you know, tankers just for one product. You have tankers that are even geared towards, you know, transporting juice. Uh, you have, you know, general cargo ships, you have container ships. Um, so you have ships that are designed to carry bulk products like grain, you know, so even, you know, just the ships that transport commercial goods are so specialized today. Um, it's, it's an incredible difference. Yeah. And, and to your point, and that goes back to the global trade, right? Like, cause you know, one route might specialize in, in some sort of exchange, which would then, you know, create a hyper, um, well, it, it creates the space so that, for example, if I wanted to create a ship that's just for grain, well, now I have a route that, that this is, you know, grain is shipped enough on this, that it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but then even to your point again, um, you know, we're kind of reaching 
this nexus point uh, in my eyes, as far as efficiencies when it comes to fossil fuels and things like that. We need we, economies of scale and our trade is just getting larger and larger and larger. So even container ships like we're seeing with the Suez Canal uh, and the Ever Given, um, is it makes sense to make a giant, a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger uh, cargo ship. But then we're starting to see kind of the complexities that happen when you do that, um, either with our infrastructure in the case of the Suez Canal um, and not necessarily being built in such a way that would you know, contend with something like that happening. Um, but even what we're seeing with China, which is we don't have, you know, there, there's little little inefficiencies or necessities, like not having enough containers to be able to get ships over here, right? Or, or, or parts getting squeezed out. Like I saw something recently about like how exercise equipment is, is causing uh, the amount of, of price of all goods and shipping to go up because exercise equipment is so heavy and so big. Um, and it's oftentimes like the example that was given was Peloton. So yeah. the way Pelotons are assembled, they actually don't stack very well uh, and they take up a lot of space versus the volume and weight that they are. Um, mm-hmm. So that all kind of, it makes sense. We're, we're in this nexus point where nowadays it's a whole different world than uh, 17 or 1817. Um, I have a question about the, the fact that our shipbuilding went from being, you know, the best and the brightest to, to not being the greatest. Um, it, is part of this specialization in shipbuilding part of the reason for this. And, and by that being ships are made with steel now and not made with wood. Um, you, you know, they're, they're highly, um, highly computerized, which w- would be good on our, on our end. Cause we, we make most of the semiconductors. Um, but it, what is it that goes into the less, less efficiency? Is it that there hasn't, I mean, is it just the cost of labor is, is more, is that we haven't been investing in our ports and infrastructure to be able to have a bit better ship making, um, has it shifted to more military budgets as opposed to civilian or, or what What from there? So the, the short version is this. Um, industries that are not forced to compete will not be competitive. Uh, these shipbuilders were handed a captive domestic market. You know, Americans, if they want to ship goods by, by water within the United States, we have to buy from U.S. shipyards. They have a captive market. Uh, so that's reduced incentive to innovate and compete. Um, but if you want, you know, the, the longer explanation, as you kind of hinted at, um, U.S. is great so long as the, we were living in a world of sale and wood. Uh, but that changed starting, I think, the 1830s, 1840s, uh, and then accelerating uh, in the 50s and 60s. We saw the switch uh, from wood to iron and then later steel and from sail to steam. And the British who led the Industrial Revolution were great on the steel and, and, um, and steam uh, fronts. And they took over as world leaders in uh, shipbuilding. And the United States, well, they had built the world famous clipper ships you know, back in the 1830s, which uh, sailed at uh, you know, record setting speeds and were very efficient. But that didn't do you a whole lot of good in a world uh, governed by you know, iron and steam. Um, but the US, instead of competing and innovating, they just kind of stuck with what they knew. And I believe that as late as 1890, a majority of the US fleet was still wood and sail uh, fleets. Um, and you also brought up uh, labor costs. Uh, interestingly, uh, that was cited for a long time uh, be- is, is why U.S. Uh, built ships were more expensive because 
the U.S. built premium, that's not something that just happened in recent decades. You can go back to, I think, like the 1860s, 1870s and find examples of U.S. built ships being, you know, 50 to 70 percent more expensive than foreign built ships. And back then, uh, Americans were paid more. Uh, labor costs were more than foreigners. But today we're in this bizarre situation where a, a, a container ship that can cost five times more in the United States than abroad, and yet Americans get paid less than many of the, the foreign uh, countries that, that are building these ships. American shipbuilders actually get paid less than the Japanese. They get paid less than the South Koreans. The only major shipbuilder that I'm aware of that uh, pays higher wages or lower wages than Americans is, is China. I think it's something like, you know, Americans are like $23 and the Chinese are 13, something like that. Um, but it's, it's also a mistake to think that um, the, the cheapest is, is simply a product of who has um, the, the lowest wages. Because, you know, what it comes down to is not, uh, it comes down to productivity, right? It's Efficiency. how much bang for the buck, exactly. How much bang for the buck are you getting out of these workers? If you're paying someone $40 an hour and they're producing $80 worth of stuff and you're paying someone else, you know, $20 an hour and you're getting $25 worth of stuff, you know, what's really the better deal there? Um, so that's why if you look around, it's not as though the U.S. has no auto manufacturing, for example. I, I believe we're number two, number three in the world, something like that in terms of auto production. Uh, aerospace, you know, Boeing, they didn't move uh, all their uh, plants down to Mexico. Uh, you know, Boeing manufactures here in the United States and is a world leader in aerospace. Um, so, so, you know, a few things. U.S. had reduced incentive to innovate and compete. Um, they had this captive domestic market. Um, and then with that comes an issue of scale. Uh, to be truly efficient, you need to build at scale. Uh, you know, American shipyards total, I mean, all shipyards combined in an average year right now build, in terms of large ocean-going commercial ships, two or three per year. Um, you know, last year they built one. This year, they're on track to build two. Next year, the projected build zero. Um, these are extremely low economies of scale. Shipbuilding is hugely capital intensive. All the equipment, the cranes, everything you need, uh, the steel cutting equipment, uh, it's all hugely expensive. Now, if you're building two ships a year, well, I mean, total, I mean, think about one shipyard. You may build one ship every two years. You know, how you, you can't spread your fixed costs. But if you're a South Korean yard and you're building 50 ships a year, you have so many more ships to spread your, those fixed costs across. Also, if you're a South Korean shipyard, you're building 50 ships and you go to an engine manufacturer and you say, yeah, I'd like to place an order for 50 engines. You're going to get a very different price than if you're someone says, I'd like to order two. Um, you know, your leverage is just, it's, it's incredibly different. So, and, or when you go and say, here's how much steel I want to buy. Uh, and you're ordering enough steel for 50 ships, just different economies of scale. And then lastly, you have to talk about specialization. You want to get good at something, you need to build a lot of it, and you need to specialize in it. Uh, and Americans are the opposite. We don't build very much, and, and we build a wide variety of things. Because again, um, if you need a vessel in the United States, it has to come from an American shipyard. So in a more rational world, you'd say, okay, I need to buy a dredging vessel. Well, the Dutch are the best at that, so I'll go there. Or I need to buy an icebreaker, I'll go to Finland. Uh, I need to buy a container ship, I'll go to you know, South Korea or China. I need a, 
uh, liquefied petroleum gas carrier, I'll go to South Korea, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in the United States, it's like, well, I need a dredging vessel. I need to go to an American shipyard. I need you know, this vessel. I need to go to an American shipyard. So the, so the reality or the end result is that we very, build very few uh, vessels. And then American uh, shipyards are kind of helter-skelter in that one year, you know, like uh, I'm thinking of VT Halter Shipyard in Mississippi, they'll build you know, um, a, a articulated tug barge, which is uh, it's, it's a barge with a tugboat attached to it. And then they'll build a container ship and then they'll build an icebreaker for the Coast Guard. You know, they're just kind of all over the place in what they're building. They don't take, you know, one thing and specialize in it. Rather, they're kind of all over the place. And, and the end result is uh, just a lack of competitiveness as reflected in the prices they charge. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it's it probably would take a lot of specialization of just knowledge, right? Like what do you need to know in order to build a ship, you know, an icebreaker? Yeah. And there's also like a, the, there's a learning curve there, right? Mm -hmm. If you get an order um, for, uh, you know, someone says, I'm going to place an order for 15 ships. Well, you know, the first one, you kind of, okay, this is a new kind of ship and you figure out as you go. Well, the second and third one, you can take the lessons learned from building those first few ships and apply those. Well, as an American, you never get, you rarely ever get uh, an order for more than two ships at a time of a certain model. So those learning curve effects, by the time you've really gotten great at building that type of ship, you're not building any more of them. You know, it's on to the next one. So that's fascinating. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Like the, um, so I, I mean, I work in software development and iteration is like a tenant of software development. You know, you, you start with the easiest thing you could build first and you kind of build up there. And then you're constantly going back on what you built and said, like, is there a better way we could have done that? Can we do that differently going forward? Um, but that's when we're focusing in on a one single product, right? <laughs> Run single thing where this is, you have to be quite manic. Um, and I would imagine if there was a demand or, you know, a, uh, a market for it, you know, some type of modularity and, and building would be great. But if you're only building, a, you know, less than a handful, you're building, you know, uh, you know, pairs or single one-offs of ships, you're not going to get any of that type of efficiency. Um, which is interesting. And, and the captive market thing, I think is an interesting point. And I wanted to highlight, cause it's similar to the sugar, uh, in the sense that you, you, you own like, um, the individual shipyards don't own the market, but they're, they're forced actors where there's no other game in town. Um, so you, you're kind of having, it's a perfect storm of problems really now that I'm understanding it more. Because uh, you have a market that's required to be, you know, built and, uh, and staffed as well, which I want to get into with certain individuals or, or built in a certain place. Um, and then on top of it, uh, you know, it's not the greatest, it's more expensive, um, which some of these logistical issues that I've been reading about with COVID make a little bit more sense, which I want to ask you a question before I, I go on to labor. Um, so for example, there's a, a delay right now on anything that's coming to America from China and, and specific, uh, like you can, you can see in like orders or things that are out of stock. It's a little bit, it's getting a little bit better now. Um, so, let's just say there's an order for, uh, I'm going to keep using Amazon, um, a bulk a number of Amazon goods that's going to go to the port of Los Angeles or Long Beach. Um, it's going to get put on rail and distributed out there. Does that ship need to be American built, American staffed, um, or can it be Chinese built and Chinese staffed, even, even though it's yeah, manufactured built there? International commerce is not subject to the Jones Act. So if a foreign, if, if, if uh, goods are coming from a foreign port, there's no Jones, Jones Act does not apply and it can be international. So there's an excellent chance that that ship coming into a U.S. port could be flagged in Hong Kong, crewed by Indians, owned by Japanese. Uh, you know, it's, it's very polyglot, um, 
uh, yeah, multi multinational experience. I, I can't think of an industry more international than, than shipping. In fact, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so if it's coming from Hong Kong or coming from uh, Shanghai or something along those lines and going into the U.S. ports, it's not subject to it. But if it's going from Miami to Los Angeles and it's going through the Panama Canal, then now all of a sudden it's it's subject to this. Yeah, provided that the only. Um, if, if a ship, you know, picks up a good in an American port and drops off another American port, it's subject to the Jones Act. But you do have situations where, uh, you know, a foreign ship will come over from Europe, uh, say from Rotterdam, and it will head to New Jersey. It'll stop in New Jersey and it'll drop off some goods. And then it'll head down to, say, Wilmington, North Carolina, and it'll drop off some more goods. That's perfectly legit, provided those goods it's dropping off also came from Europe. It can't pick up something in New York and then it off of Wilmington, or it can stop in Wilmington and then head down to Miami and it'll pick up goods in Miami that are headed for an overseas destination. So as long as everything is dropping off and picking up or either headed for abroad or being imported, it's all, it's all perfectly fine. Interesting. Um, would this type of, I'm going to say game, this type of game of, of how the rules are set up, does it encourage more international trade versus domestic trade? Hundred percent, absolutely. That's one of the interesting things about the Jones Act is that it's often presented as, "Hey, this is an epitome of America first, right? I mean, these are American crude, American flagged, American owned, American built ships. This is so great. This is, you know, this promotes the American economy, and that that's the thinking. And 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 obviously, it's it's easy to understand why someone would think about. But the actual result is the complete opposite. Because when you force Americans to use these very expensive ships, uh, it's a disincentive uh, to buying American products because you know that they'll have to come on American ships. So we have numerous examples of people importing goods from abroad rather than buying American products. Because once you factor in the cost of transportation, it doesn't make any sense to buy American. Um, Maybe the most famous or notorious example of this is uh, in New England and Puerto Rico, both locations import liquefied natural gas from abroad. In fact, both have had examples of importing it from as far away as uh, they've imported Russian uh, natural gas, which is interesting because we have natural gas coming out our ears here in the United States. We are an energy superpower. Um, But when it comes to uh, both places, they can't buy American natural gas, even if they wanted to buy ship because there are zero Jones Act ships um, qualified to transport natural gas. There are no Jones Act LNG carriers in the fleet of 96 wow. ships. Now, a lot of people hear that and they think, okay, well, this seems like an easy problem to solve. You go build the ship, you crew with Americans, and then you can transport it. What, what's so difficult about that? But when you factor in the cost of shipbuilding, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, According to the Wall Street Journal, to build an LNG carrier in Asia costs about $180 million. To build one in the United States costs $700 million. So that's, that's over half a billion dollars more for one ship, just one ship. Uh, who in their right mind is ever going to build it? The math doesn't pencil out. No one's going to do that. So the ship doesn't get built. So Puerto Rico is like, you know, we'd like to buy American natural gas, but it's not even an option for us because there are no ships to transport it. Uh, We have other examples. Like I I remember reading a year or two ago about California was importing crude oil from Nigeria. 
uh, rather than the Gulf Coast, because again, you factor in the cost of transportation, just doesn't make sense. Uh, 2013, the GAO did a study of uh, the Jones Act's impact on Puerto Rico, and they talked to people in the agricultural community there, and they said, you know, when we go to buy feed or fertilizer, we buy it from foreign sources like Canada. Because again, once you factor in the cost of transportation, doesn't make sense to buy American. Uh, last example, you know, again off the top of my head, the Department of Agriculture on their website uh, talks about Puerto Rico importing rice from China instead of the southeastern United States, which actually is a fairly significant rice producer. I think like Arkansas and a few other states produce rice in decent amounts. And one reason uh, it gave was the Jones Act because of the high expense of Jones Act shipping. They, it makes more sense to ship all the way from China than from the Southeast United States because of, of the high cost of shipping. That makes sense. Uh, it's similar to like um, any experience I'm sure people have had online when I've been having this experience with Etsy lately where I go and I'm like, oh man, this is awesome. It's, you know, whatever amount of affordable price, this is great. I'm going to buy it. And then all of a sudden I realize the shipping is four times the amount of the actual good, um, which the natural gas is, is most interesting to me because I don't know the exact number. I think Russia may be be close, but I, I'm pretty sure the United States has more liquefied national uh, liquefied natural gas ports than anywhere else. I know we have more under construction as well um, because, okay, so natural gas comes out of the ground and if you want to transport it, you turn it into liquid um, because the volume that you create on there actually makes it a lot more uh, cost-effective to transport as a liquid as opposed to a gas, you know, kind of water versus air kind of thing, like how much water is in the air versus, you know, pumping it into liquid form, you can get a lot more. So it's fascinating to me that I can understand Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is an interesting case study for a lot of trade um, on tax stuff as well, um, especially pharmaceuticals. But anyways, um, so that's interesting that the, the second order effect of it is actually decreased domestic production or domestic uh, trade because of the fact that in some of these areas where you need to bring in by ship, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. And I just like to point out, sorry to interrupt, but no, go ahead. No, go ahead. we're a huge country. I mean, this is a country that stretches from, you know, Puerto Rico to Alaska and Hawaii and Guam even. Uh, it's a massive country. A uh, distance is a barrier to trade that needs to be overcome. You need efficient transport options to overcome that. And traditionally, you know, most places in the world, uh, shipping, you know, the use of water transport is one means of, it, of overcoming that distance and is efficient means of transportation. And yet we've come to this absurd situation where, uh, we only really use ships in this country where we have no other options. Uh, like if you're going, if you're shipping something to Hawaii, you don't use, you, know, you can't use rail, you can't use truck, you have to use a ship or Puerto Rico. Uh, and I, I, I have to think that absent the Jones Act, um, you know, fortunately in the 48 contiguous states, well, there are no ships. Okay, well, I can use the truck, I can use rail, I have other options. But I would think that in the Jones Act's absence, we would see ships operating along our coasts, and that would become one of, you know, several, uh, a menu of options, but it basically doesn't exist because it's been, it's priced itself out of, uh, out of competitiveness, so out of existence. So, you know, we, the only ships that operate within the United States, the contiguous states are tankers, and even then, oftentimes, they only go uh, because there's no pipeline available. For example, the airport in Miami, there's no pipeline that goes to Florida. So jet fuel for the airport in Miami has to be brought in by, by, by water. Um, so, you know, yeah, if we had a fully developed, you know, pipeline network, I even wonder uh, how many tanker ships, you know, we would have, we'd be using in this country. Wow. Which actually kind of goes back to the, 
the domestic security of it all actually it, it's promote it's it's created a situation where it's self-perpetuating itself in the opposite direction now well exactly if the logic is you know we need to be self-reliant uh, because relying on foreigners is dangerous well we've come to a place where um, you know relying uh, we encourage Americans to rely on foreigners including for critical products like energy again you know uh, we have examples of Puerto Rico and New England both importing natural gas from Russia now to be clear, Russia isn't their primary supplier, um, but there have been times where that has actually happened. Uh, so it's just, it's a very curious thing. It's, it's a disincentive to self-reliance, which again is kind of the opposite of, of, of what uh, the Jones Act lobby suggests the law is meant to accomplish. Yeah, it's interesting. Rhetoric versus reality is, is often yeah. a duality. Um, you know, the example that I, I, would like, I would like to plug, so I'm a huge car nut. Um, and in the 70s, American cars were terrible. Um, not that I lived through it, but I know, uh, they were terrible. And you had like the, the, all those ac- acronyms for, you know, Ford fixer repair daily and things like that. Um, and then, you know, you had Japanese cars start entering the market, particularly Toyota, uh, that was all of a sudden entering in Honda and entering the market. Um, and they, even with tariffs and everything, they were still able to compete quite well, but what kind of the biggest thing to it, which then again, shocked, uh, again, in kind of the 2008 financial crisis when uh, a lot of automakers failed, was the like the amount of uh, issues or just the quality of the build was so much higher um, on foreign cars and it created better American cars. Um, so like myself pers- personally, I don't buy any GMs because they still have a lot of issues if you ask me. Um, but Ford uh, has really stepped up and and how were they able to step up? And, and you know they were one of the, I think they were the only major automaker in 2008 that didn't take a bailout. And how they were able to do that is they had this great European division competing with European and uh, Japanese or, you know, Asian cars um, that they just actually brought their model line from Europe over. So the Ford Fusion was the first one they did this on. That was actually a European car. Um, and the quality all of a sudden got up. Now, why did that happen? Well, because necessity brings invention, right? They were required in the market, um, if you want to use market terminology, to create better cars because people weren't purchasing them, um, which then all of a sudden created a better quality product for everybody and the market kind of stabilized. So Nowadays, sure, like you can make arguments of, you know, maybe the balance for American cars should be different. Um, for some reason, Tesla is always absent from those conversations. Um, but, uh, you know, it's similar here where you're going, you know, because of these required um, legislations of purchasing, you know, from uh, an American manufacturer and all of that, you're, you're actually not requiring any amount of efficiency or quality into the system. Um, so what it ends up doing is creating a worse and worse product, um, which it seems that the lobby is using as a reason to be able to kind of go further entrench itself, which is which is not surprising, but disappointing, I suppose. I think that's a great point uh, using the the auto example. You know, sometimes I get asked by people, they say, what do you think would happen if tomorrow we got rid of that U.S. built requirement? What would happen to the U.S. shipload industry? I mean, would it collapse? You know, what what would happen? And I think that uh, autos offers an, uh, an interesting example. I think a useful example, where I think that they would they would have to get better, and the immediate impact would be rough. Uh, yeah, when Toyota showed up on American shores and became available to American consumers, uh, that was probably bad for American automakers. But in the long run, they're better for it. I think it would be the same with U.S. shipbuilding. 
I think that, you know, like I mentioned before, they don't have a competitive niche. Uh, they're kind of all, they're, they're jack of trade, master of none. And I think they would have to find that competitive niche. I mean, I look around the world and, and as I said before, um, you know, the Dutch are very, you know, high wage country. They're very good at dredging vessels. The Norwegians are good at uh, offshore service vessels used to supply oil platforms. Uh, the, the Finns are great at icebreakers. Um, Western Europe dominates in the construction of large cruise ships. And you're going to tell me that Americans have nothing to offer the world in terms of shipbuilding. And this is another thing that strikes me about the Jones Act. This is just so pessimistic. It assumes implicitly that Americans, uh, they need to be protected because we can't compete. We're not good enough. We're subpar. And uh, absent the Jones Act, shipbuilding would be obliterated. Um, and I, I, I just find that uh, unfair uh, and just an indictment of their, their, what they think about American workers uh, and American ingenuity. I think this is a country that does amazing things. You know, we designed the iPhone and, you know, we have Elon Musk, you know, building these rockets to go in the sky and land themselves in the middle of the ocean on a, on a, on a, on a vessel. And you're telling me that we have nothing, a high technology country like ours has nothing to offer the world of shipbuilding. I just, I just reject that idea. And then lastly, I just say, and what shipbuilding is there left to protect? I mean, like I said, we're at a point where our shipbuilding in terms of, you know, large ocean going ships is on average two to three per year and seems to be trending downwards. Um, we, there's not 70% of shipbuilding uh, revenue comes from the government, government contracts for the Navy, Coast Guard, uh, et, et cetera, other government entities. It's not even commercial. So our commercial shrunk to just to such a minimal level. It would be hard uh, not to improve upon the, the established record. If this isn't failure, I don't know what is. I think that's a great point. Yeah. Um, and it, it also be interesting. Um, you know, it's perhaps it finally infrastructure week here in America. Um, but it's interesting that, uh, you know, all of the talks of infrastructure, um, particularly I'm a big fan of rail. Um, mostly uh, the biggest reason I'm a big fan of rail is because of the efficiencies you get with rail. Um, when, especially when it comes like, I'm, I'm a big uh, proponent of, uh, I'm trying to stop saying climate change and say ecological collapse. Cause I think that's a little more, uh, pointed to really what we're living through. I think climate change makes it seem like we're going to have a nice couple sunny days when, when the reality is uh, life as we know it on earth is fundamentally changing and irrecoverably. Um, but anyways, um, you know, railed is incredibly intensive to build, right? Like you have to have fixed lines and fixed yeah, routes. You have to maintain the track. Yeah. And, and then you have to maintain it. Um, and then you have like, um, so I, I've, I've consulted in a lot of different industries and one of them that I consulted in was agriculture once. And I was talking with, uh, with them about like ship, uh, shipping seed from uh, America to Brazil um, and, and the numerous complexities that come with that. And I was like, oh man, this is really crazy. Um, and one of the guys I was talking with was like, he, he laughed and he goes, I used to be in rail. He's like, you want to see what rail logistics is like? He's like, you're, you're in for a treat. This is nothing. Um, because of the fact that you have a lot of single lanes and single tracks, so you have to be able to say like, okay, this is going to go east to west, and then you know, in another hour, it's going to go west to east. Um, and what he was saying that was most interesting was uh, he's like, you know, the best trains, the best locomotives we have are actually the oldest. So he's like, so when something gets broken on it, he's like, imagine trying to reroute and figure out how to like the delays on that. Um, so my point in bringing that up is, you know, I think our infrastructure is is needing a lot of attention. But when it comes to shipbuilding, all you need is a port, 
And a port need, you need infrastructure. Our ports, I, there was a report that was out like two weeks ago talking about how po- the portable state of our ports are in um, and just the capacity issues that we have. Um, so those definitely need to be retooled. But when it comes to uh, building you know, with ships, you don't need to, con- it's, it's less to consider because the water is there right? You know, it's, you can ramp up into a ship building and, and maybe the, you have to get in some inefficiencies of offloading or, you know, like what they're doing at Long Beach right now, because there's such a line of, of getting ships in there. Um, they're coming up with a lot of smart ways to kind of unload faster and get things under rail and perhaps get it under rail and, and you know, get all this the cargo out of the containers later. Um, it seems to me that this is a huge missed opportunity to say, hey, let's figure out ways to ramp up shipping uh, domestic shipping because of the fact that it doesn't need as much as like road infrastructure or rail infrastructure or even air infrastructure because I mean airports and and all of those things I just said are all they're they're everything is capital intensive when we're talking economies of this scale. Um, but the time delta on them is a lot different than when it comes to shipping because of the fact, like I said, it the routes there you can figure out with AI and things like that, potentially even get it more efficient. Um so do you, do you have any hope that anything is going to change anytime soon? Uh, it, it, it's always advisable to be pessimistic on these matters. Um, you know, again, policy has been what it is, arguably, you know, for you know, well over 200 years. Um, the, the, the reason I, I do that said, the reason I do have some hope here is that um, the, the failure is so glaring and we've, we've gotten to the point where it used to be that uh, these, the, you know, the shipbuilding interest, um, you know, the labor unions, they employed a decent number of people, but they keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And you would think that there would be a commensurate reduction in their, their lobbying power. Uh, you know, it used to be that, uh, you know, you'd have these vast shipyards employed lots of people. Well, geez, you know, it comes to commercial shipbuilding in this country. I mean, the number of people it employs is, is tiny. The entire domestic industry, I mean, you include the shipbuilders, you include the people that crew the ships. Um, the whole Jones Act shipping industry is less than 100,000 people. You divide that by 50 states and you're talking, it's less than 2,000 people per state. Uh, this is not a big industry, which is, which is a shame because you would think of how maritime and water oriented the United States is. And by the way, that 100,000 are actually, I think it's like 95,000. I mean, the majority of that are guys in the Mississippi River pushing barges, you know, in tugboats. This isn't actual ships. You know, there are only 96 ships in the Jones Act fleet. Um, so wow. you just think that at some point, and yeah, if you go back to, you know, 1950, I think it was something like 440 ships, something like that. I think as recently as 1980, it was close to 200 ships. Uh, so the fleet keeps shrinking. Um, part of that's a reflection of ships have gotten bigger and you can do more with less. But hey, at the same time, our, our economy and our population has gotten so much bigger, yet you know that, that hasn't offset uh, the decline in, in, in the fleet. Um, so you, know, you, you live on the Great Lakes, just to give you a sense of the shipbuilding there. There hasn't been a new ship built on the Great Lakes since 1983. Uh, they're currently building one now. I think it's supposed to be ready next year. It'll be the first ship built in 40 years. That's 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 crazy. I mean, this is again this. It, there's not much of an industry left. There's increasingly less of an industry left to protect, and hopefully that'll produce an opening for some people to say, "This isn't working. This the this is not working for us. 
uh, and, and the people defending the status quo won't have the votes and the money behind them to, uh, you know, to exercise a veto on, on reform efforts. So it's not going to happen tomorrow or the year, or even the day after that, or maybe even, you know, a few years from now, but I do think that we're, we're going to come to a point where, uh, you know, what, what are we doing here? What are we, what industry is there left to protect? And that'll open the door for, for new, for new thinking. Yeah. I'm cautiously pessimistic as well. Though. <laughs> I, I, I think you set uh, the stage that you set could be a Shakespearean case study and uh, how it's unlikely to happen. I mean, if 70% of their, in the industry comes from government, that means it's actually incentivizing them to lobby more. Um, and if there's less players, that means that's, it's less of a, it's easier to get a consensus among the people who are there, which means it's easier to get money flowing into certain politicians to make sure that things happen. Also, I'm really curious. I would be curious to understand how many of those 95 or less than 100,000 individuals that are employed, what is their spread? Because my, my assumption, my kind of gut reaction is that they're probably localized to a handful of states, which means yes. that, that that lobbying power and how much those individual senators or congressmen um, are going to be fighting for this issue is going to be uh, quite a bit more. Yeah, so it it is it is geographically concentrated. Um, you know, especially you know, again, um, you know, the majority of our maritime industry in the United States is not ships. It is people working on tugboats and barges and smaller craft uh, like that. So you're talking people, folks that operate on you know the Mississippi River, uh, you know Louisiana. Um, I wouldn't say they're a big shipbuilder because they don't really build ships, but they build smaller like smaller craft. Um, you know, ferries, uh, th- things like that, you find down there, you know, the Louisiana delegation will always be 100% support of, of the Jones Act. Um, and, and one interesting thing to note about the politics of Jones Act reform is that some of the leading voices for Jones Act reform have come from uh, landlocked states, John McCain of Arizona, Mike Lee of Utah, uh, and some of the biggest proponents of the Jones Act, some of the fiercest supporters come from those places that are most hurt by the Jones Act, like Hawaii, like Alaska. Um, The Alaska delegation, all three members are big time Jones Act supporters. Uh, Both senators from Hawaii are both Jones Act supporters. There is one member of the Hawaii delegation that is an opponent of the Jones Act, uh, Representative Ed Case, and he has said that his anti-Jones Act position, this is very counterintuitive, has been one of the hardest positions that he's taken. You would think that would be a no-brainer in Hawaii, um, especially when you look at opinion polls. There was a poll done, I believe, last year in Hawaii that showed among Hawaiians that are aware of the Jones Act, something like 85% either want to see the law repealed or reformed. Only 15%, it was 10 or 15% favored the status quo. Um, and yet that is not reflected in the politics that we see um, because of the phenomenon of you know, concentrated special interests and these dispersed costs. Uh, there are, I, I could name, you know, a dozen organizations that exist that basically to perpetuate the Jones Act and ensure that it, it, it's, it, it's, it stays uh, on the books. But I can't think of one uh, industry lobbying group that is geared, has one of its main purposes as opposing the Jones Act. Um, so yeah. that's one of the depressing realities we have to contend with. Yeah. This is something I, um, I think about a lot when I study policy issues is that most frequently the most harmful policy, uh, implica- implications come from the least known, 
most highly like uh, opaque. Like this is, I would say this is a fairly opaque issue, right? Like we, we absolutely we, opaque. Yeah, yeah. We've spent several times, several minutes going over, just going from why was it started into understanding like what happened, like what it is. And then the, the second and third and fourth order effects of it. Um, so, I mean, there, 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 it doesn't surprise me that Hawaii, one of the most remote regions of the world, um, which would benefit from this, right? Because now all of a sudden it, it would, in, well, benefit in the sense that at least it would increase domestic trade with the rest of the, the contiguous US or even maybe perhaps Alaska in some degree, um, as opposed to probably a lot of their goods being cheaper to import as well, I would, I'm assuming, um, because of this type of, of setup. Um, it also doesn't surprise me that some of the landlocked states, that that just seems to me like the, the corporate interests or lobbying interests uh, uh, getting into play there. But um, you know, going back to like the infrastructure point though, uh, the Mississippi. So like I've, I've, I've come from, uh, Chicago and I've spent a lot of time in Minnesota. I have family up there all along the Mississippi. Um, so I'm quite familiar with it. Um, the, the analog I've been thinking about lately with it is it's like the American Nile. Um, because you know, the Nile is still is used as a ship, you know, shipping because it's just so many settlements, so much of, you know, I mean, like if you just look at the the Mississippi, you know, you have you have St. Paul up there, and then you kind of keep going down, and you have cities upon cities that are still built with St. Louis and all of that. Um, but beyond that, a lot of agriculture or industry that gets um, uh, developed in any of the states along there get use that as the main main navigable way to get goods down. Um, which makes sense to me that that our only domestic market for ships anymore is along the Mississippi. Um, but it would be curious to me what our industry would change if we were in, in some way opening up the market, you know, would more, you know, intercoastal uh, shipping happen, you know, particularly maybe this is just because I recently moved from Southern California. Um, it'd be curious to me how much of the West Coast, the Western seaboard would be ships going up and back. Um, because I mean, I can tell you, like, I can't tell you how many times it'd be any time of day that I'm driving, uh, on the five, uh, on the West coast and any part of California. And it's filled with trucks, um, all day and night. And actually like, it's funny in Southern California, you think like, Oh, okay. I'm going to like shift the time that I'm going to be driving at 10 o'clock at night and see if, you know, that changes the traffic and it doesn't because now you just have trucks. Um, so it'd be curious to me how much our infrastructure would shift if we had this, like, you know, we have an example with, you know, the Mississippi where it, it's navigable, navigable. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's there for us. It's a, it's well put out route. There's years of infrastructure and, and, uh, commerce that kind of go along with it. Um, I wonder if new things would emerge, particularly, um, in the age of, you know, climate change, ecological collapse, where we're constantly looking for more efficiencies. Um, I would, I would strike to, to find that I bet we'd have a lot more efficiencies and I'll plug AI again, if we can just say like, Hey, look, like these are the, the, the currents, this is the, you know, the, the various places we want to stop. What would be the most efficient route between those if we were using water passageways? Yeah, I, I think that there's absolutely an opportunity there. Um, it's interesting to look at Europe as kind of an analog uh, of the United States because uh, of a different policy uh, regime. Cabotage is allowed among EU members. And of course, you can buy vessels from any country. There's no uh, domestic build requirement. And in the EU, coastal shipping accounts for, I believe, something like 40% of freight movement. In the United States, 
ships account for 2% of freight movement. Uh, you add in barges, and I think you're looking at, you know, 6 7%, something like that. Now, obviously, um, policy isn't the only determinant of, of how much uh, coastal shipping gets used. You, know, you have to look at just your geographical disposition, uh, obviously geographic factors there. Europe lends itself very well to the use of, of shipping, you know, particularly between you know, Scandinavia, uh, the UK, uh, say going from Spain to Italy or Greece, you know, it makes a lot of sense to put something on, on, on a ship. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think the US, um, we're, we're lacking, you know, our, our geography doesn't lend itself or uh, is, is anti-shipping. Um, so I'm not going to say that we would go to 40%, but hey, why not, why, why not 10%? Why not 15%? Uh, I think Jones Act reform is, is a huge part of the puzzle there. Uh, also, you, know, you spoke about California. Another piece of the puzzle, I think you need Jones Act reform and you, we need to upgrade our ports. Uh, our port handling costs are uh, far higher than in many other countries. You know, you compare Shanghai, Singapore, Rotterdam, and you know these 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 ports are running twenty four seven, all highly automated, uh, versus U.S. ports. Um, you look at the ILW uh, ILWU uh, labor union. Uh, some of these guys working out in these West Coast ports make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, very well paid, very well compensated, highly unionized, highly resistant to change. So if we could get efficient ports merged with efficient shipping, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say the I-5 would be empty of trucks, but I think you would see an appreciable difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely could agree with that. Um, it's something else that like uh, I would like to plug as far as like the European example there, uh, the European plateau, if you will, um, is we often look at America as a homogenous, um, and it's, it's really not both in like, uh, I mean, culture, I would even such to say that, but also in geography. So if we're going to, you know, say like, you know, what percentage of our entire domestic, um, you know, infrastructure and, and trade should be done by shipping. It's like, wow, well, I mean, like, I, I don't even know what it would change to, but I bet regionally it would change quite a bit like the Gulf going from, you know, uh, maybe not the Gulf because the, the geography isn't that much, but definitely um, in the Great Lakes region, you know, I would imagine that shipping would go up quite a bit. I would imagine it would go up quite a bit again on the West Coast because the geography there makes it incredibly difficult to, to move things either by rail um, or by, by road. Because I mean, like once again, uh, you know, like I living out in Southern California, it was always striking to me where I'd be like, oh, something's 45 miles away. Okay, cool. It's like 45 minutes. That's awesome. And then I look at the GPS and it's like two hours. It's like, what? And it's because all these passageways and foothills and mountains and earth you have to deal with um, is quite- and traffic. And, and just traffic. traffic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just, yeah, yeah. just traffic. Yeah. You know, if we had some kind of congestion tax, uh, you know, that would probably also help uh, promote alternative uh, transportation uses. Or yeah, yeah. That's very, it's very Scandinavian of you as well. Um but, you know, uh, one thing I want, just want to butt in a little bit, you mentioned the Great Lakes, and I think that's a really interesting example um, because, again, you know, I mentioned that there hasn't been a new ship built in 40 years in the Great Lakes. Well, you know, ships are like anything else, like cars or, or airplanes, where the newest is the best. It has the latest technology, um, you know, a car today versus a car 20 years ago. Now, think a car today versus a car 
40 years ago and the differences. And, and the Jones Act, and particularly the U.S. built requirement, is just a severe disincentive to modernization of the fleet. If we had uh, just get rid of the build requirement, you would see an influx of new tonnage uh, in the Jones Act fleet. You would see updated, modernized vessels. Presumably, modernized means more efficient. More efficient means lower prices, which means greater attractiveness for their use. Uh, Canada, I think it's very interesting, uh, natural um, experiment there, uh, where it used to be that Canada had, I think, a 25% tax on the importation of large ships. And then back in like 2010, 2011, they got rid of that. You can import them tax-free. Well, guess what? Canada has been buying new ships left and right for their, for their Great Lakes fleet. And I think, I think one company alone, like Algoma, uh, they, Algoma Central, they bought like 10 new ships over the last, uh, you know, eight years or so. Whereas again, Americans have had zero new ships. Um, so, and they've highlighted that's not just good from an economic perspective in terms of environmental uh, uh, degradation, in terms of pollution. These are far superior to the ships that they're replacing. That is a good in and of itself, right there. Yep. And again, if you think that you know we're facing a climate emergency, um, this should this absolutely has to be on the table as part of the solution. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, so I, I'm a car nut, right? Uh, and I have a incredibly souped up Subaru. So I, I drive a Subaru that I have no uh, car. Oh, you're even better than me that I, I can't claim to be as much of an environmental nut when I have this, uh, you know, 20 PSI turbocharged Subaru. Uh, but the thing that I, I often say to people, uh, when they, like one time I rented a, a, a Dodge charger, I was on a business trip. Uh, and I had just, uh, how do I put this, uh, delicately? Um, I'm a, I used to be a consultant. So someone, I had this coffee cup and it was protect our wild, our, our wild rivers or wild waters or something like that is what it was. And it was part of this Alliance that wants to, uh, more smartly protect our waterways because if we, we just think, Oh, let's put a dam in here. That's going to get en energy out of this, but there's a lot of other order effects that come from, uh, damming. Um, and you're seeing it a lot in, uh, Washington state actually, um, particularly the salmon, uh, a lot of salmon are just distinct subspecies have just completely vanished. Um, and then when that leaves, you have all these different uh, effects with the ecosystem. So uh, someone brought it up, like, what is this? And I kind of went on this uh, environmental rant. I was a little over caffeinated from the coffee in the cup. And uh, so, so then later on in that evening, I picked up somebody to go get some dinner and they were like, you have a charger. Why'd you rent a charger? I would have thought you would like rent it a Prius or something. Um, and, I, and the, the comment I made back was, um, you know, most cars that are built today, that charger is one of them. My car is another one. Um, my car is a, what they call a, a partial zero emission vehicle. Um, so yes, it, it, it has an internal combustion engine. Uh, yes, it, uh, um, you know, burns and has carbon into the, you know, into the atmosphere, but the amount that it's emitting is very small compared to what it is now, now i'm not a proponent for gasoline engines i think we should go electric as fast as we can um i am you know uh I, i'm accepting the fact that i'm not going to have a manual very often anymore uh it's kind of a fate and i think it's where we should go but right now if you buy a new car versus buying a 20 10, a 10 year old car even um it is so much better for the environment uh, than it was then so yes like we should shift towards more electrification um but we also have to be recognizing that there's ways to get better than what we have now. And particularly shipping to me is most interesting because 
container ships, like international container ships are some of the worst polluters um, because of just, they, they essentially take like the lowest grade of, of fuel um, and they have a lot of particulates in there when they burn. Um, so I would imagine a shipping fleet of domestic ships uh, is that's as old as ours is, um, all 96 of them, I would imagine are not necessarily the most uh, efficient or uh, best on the environment. Um, but to kind of look at this in a more positive lighting, that actually is a huge opportunity for us to be both the leaders in more efficient and you know better for the environment uh, ships, um, but also kind of reset reset again and have a, a fleet that is built of you know something that is not as pollutant uh, in the environment. Or um, I think it's Norway um, is playing around with uh, electric. Uh, power-trained yeah. ships. Yeah, I think uh, uh, ships that run on ammonia or something like. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah, where a lot of the innovation is coming out of in, in autonomous shipping. Yeah, a lot of high right. technology is being devoted to shipping in Norway. Yeah, no, uh, and you know, like the Chevy Volt. Um, going back to GM being not the greatest run, um, I, I'm a really big fan of their architecture. I don't know if you're familiar with that vehicle, but. So it's an electric car. So the powertrain, what is pushing you forward? Um, so like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compare it to a Prius and maybe you'll understand why I got a charger instead of a Prius. Um, so in a Prius, it's actually an internal combustion car that occasionally has an electric secondary motor that will move you um, along. And it'll use the alternator from the, uh, the combustion engine to recharge the battery, which then puts it's, it's essentially a golf cart. It's, it's actually the, it's funny. It is the exact same architecture as a golf cart. If you have any of these Cushman uh, golf carts that you see, you know, and, and on golf courses or people you know, ride towards the beach where I live, um, they, they're, you know, at slow speeds or when you're like barely given the gas, um, you know, you're, you're moving on electric and all of a sudden you hear that and that's the internal combustion engine. It's the exact same architecture as a Prius, um, a Chevy Volt which I'm, I'm sad that that didn't get enough, uh, uh, sales. It kind of GM in my eyes kind of intentionally uh, killed that car. Um, it was different. So it had an internal combustion engine. It had like a very small four cylinder. I think you could probably do this, uh, with a motorcycle engine. Um, but it had a small four cylinder, but the powertrain, what was pushing you forward was 100% always electric. So it was always moving you forward from an electric motor. And then when the battery was dying down, the internal combustion engine would kick in. But the thing is, is that there's no, there's no computer controlling all of it. So like there's all these power bands that you'll see for like torque and horsepower and efficiencies on, on combustion engines. So what it would do is it would kick up the RPMs to be the most peak efficiency in the power band, where the amount of fuel that you're burning per hour matches the peak amount of energy that this, this engine could produce. So instead of you having, you know, to you know, have an internal combustion engine come in and push you forward, um, you're always running on the most, most efficient way possible. So in, instead, yes, you're still running a gas engine, but instead of a Prius getting you like 60 or 70 miles a gallon, us going, oh my God, that's crazy. You know, these volts were getting 300 miles a gallon. I think 270 is what the EPA listed it at. Um, but I've seen several reviews you can go on where people are getting 300 plus. Um, and that's just because once again, it's more efficient because of the architecture of like what you see with Tesla's um, you know, how are you able to go zero to 60 so fast is because, well, electricity moves a lot faster than gears and motors and you lose energy in every stage of the thing where, uh, with this, it's just going to go forward. So I, this is something I've thought for years now is why don't you lift that Chevy Volt's architecture and put it into shipping? 
because shipping, you need high torque, which is why they use diesel um, in order to get you going because, you know, moving a propeller through water is, it's a highly viscous solution. It's very hard to do it. Um, and every time you, you shift that propeller, you're actually losing energy as what you're trying to putting in. Um, so in my eyes, you know, experimenting with some of these ship architectures and things could be a natural place for government to step in and try to encourage an industry in new ways, especially um, with our kind of environmental situation, as opposed to where we are now and maintaining this status quo. But uh, perhaps I'm just dreaming of better architectures and much, much of this isn't going to come. Well, I, I don't know, you know, what, what the, uh, you know, the best or optimal solution is, you know, what, um, you know, forms of, of power uh, our, our ships should be using. I know there's a lot of experimentation out there with, uh, you know, liquefied natural gas is pretty popular right now, but they're also uh, competing uh, forms of energy. And I don't know what the best is, but I know that whatever it is, that the Jones Act is a deterrent to the adoption of that technology. Um, it's a it's a deterrent to fleet modernization. This is a law that says that you know when you all buy a new ship, you need to pay four or five times a higher price. Uh, so people hold on to older ships for longer than would otherwise be the case. So whenever that new technology comes out, we'll be some of the last ones to get it uh, because you make it so prohibitively expensive to to adopt that technology, and and that just seems obviously wrong and and, and failed policy. Definitely, yeah, definitely. That's a a huge miss. Um, I mean, it, it's America is the, I mean, I, I, I hope that this trend doesn't, uh, change now that I'm saying it out loud. Uh, we are the most innovative, you know, um, I, <clears throat> there's a lot of things about our country, country, like culturally or economically or governmentally that I can kind of, um, shout at the sun about, but I think one of the things that, that, uh, well, I think we live in an increasingly pessimistic world. I think that's unfortunate. Uh, I think, reality is, is what we make of it and how we perceive it. And I think the world is getting more pessimistic. Um, but with COVID, you know, we definitely could, we, we left a lot to be desired in the managing of COVID, uh, and I, both in the beginning and, and throughout, I would say. Um, but regardless, something that I don't think is getting enough attention, um, is we were able to produce a solution rather quickly. That's amazing. Think, oh yeah. Yeah, I absolutely. hundred percent agree. Yeah. And, and I think actually, um, so I, I'm curious to see how the experiment with the mRNA vaccines go out and, and the efficacy and kind of any things like that, because it is it is in a large ways an experiment. It is it's safe as we know it. Um, and it is it's, it hasn't been done before. And that's what I mean by experiment, because if this works with this, it opens up a whole new oh, yeah. things. Oh, yeah. It's um, a new, whole new world. Uh, yep. Yeah. I, I read something recently that a friend of mine uh, who's a doctor sent to me about uh potentially this being like literally a cure for cancer, uh, MRNA vaccines because of what it could do as far as sequencing. Um, but the other thing is, is that I think it was, it was early 2020 was actually when the MRNA, uh, vaccine was, was conceived and developed. And then the rest of the time was testing it to make sure that it was the right, you know, yeah, that's my understanding as well. I think it was a matter of weeks, uh, yeah. you know, when it was developed. Yeah. Right. And, and how did that happen? So this is, this is also something interesting in that article that my friend sent me, um, it explained it and it essentially MRNA was never getting the funding that it needed because of the concerns of it being unsafe, um, and unproven and essentially the promise, um, how can I put this? So, uh, the promise of it was so wide that no one believed it. So it was like, well, you got to show me it. So the other analog I would give you is blockchain. 
So I used to work a lot in blockchain when it was, you know, I think like five or years ago or so when it was really this big technology. But the, the thing that I would always go to any of my clients was, you know, there isn't a big hit that has shown what the technology could do, right? There wasn't, you know, at, you know, the Walmarts uh, of the of the world haven't come up with a solution that everyone can point to and say like, oh, that is how you use it. Now we're kind of seeing it with NFTs, which I wasn't expecting, which I think is pretty interesting. Um but the mRNA needed a reason to get funding. Now, I, I think it was, I, I won't even go down the road of what I was going to say, but um, they proved, they proved it. They proved they, there was funding that was given. There was money that was given. Government stepped in and said, hey, we're going to give you this to develop it. And now look, like we, we have a vaccine that, you know, if you look at the numbers, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that it's working as far as keeping our contagion low, um, especially considering that it would, you know, more states were opening up at this kind of uh, nexus point. Um, so we can innovate. And I mean, everything from that all the way through, uh, just, you know, giving people money and direct stimulus and kind of the effects of that, like we can in- innovate in a lot of ways, but a lot of times that is going to require us to step away from the status quo and get out of our own way. Um, and I think this is another area in which we can do it. Like, you know, if, if you can, you take the pessimistic route and say, look, like America isn't doing this, this well, we're, we're falling behind, uh, we got to hold on to what we have left, or we can take a more optimistic bend and say, well, we can innovate. Let's just try to set the conditions in a lab in such a way that what we get is something better than what we have currently. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent agree. We need to get out of our comfort zone. Again, you know, the, the current policy environment is just the product of a status quo bias. And well, we're doing it this way because this is the way we've always done it. Um, and there's no, there's no rigorous, uh, analysis applied to this or, or critical thought. Uh, the, the policy discussion within the halls of Congress is an echo chamber typically. And yeah, we, something needs to, to shake this up. Uh, um, there, yeah, it all needs to be rethought. And I, there needs to be something that, that, that shakes us out of our, 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 our current slumber um, and, and makes us wake up to the possibilities that could be realized if we had a change in the policy environment. What would you do if I gave you a, a magic wish to do a couple of policy changes? What would you do and, and what do you think the effects would be? Well, you know, obviously I would just say, you know, repeal the Jones Act, but, but let's, let's think you know, one, I'll say maybe a problem with this issue or the discussion is it's usually framed in binary terms. You know, are you, do we keep it or do you get rid of it? But, you know, there's a whole host of options between full repeal and maintaining the status quo that I think are deserving of being entertained and, and, and discussed and that could make an appreciable impact. I think that short of uh, repealing the law, a hugely useful step would be just get rid of that US built requirement. Allow Americans to shop for vessels uh, from foreign countries, just like they can shop for autos, for trucks, for rail, for airplanes, anything else. Um, that's not just good economic policy. I, you know, I'm someone that believes in individual liberty. I think that as a free person, I should be able to buy a product from any country I want um, for, for use, provided it's safe, you know, meets certain uh, regulations. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Uh, that I think would do uh, a huge amount to unleash the potential of the US maritime sector. And we have a current policy where we make it extremely expensive to buy new ships. And we wonder why the maritime sector is a mess, uh, why we have an old fleet, why it keeps shriveling. 
Um, you know, these, the answers seem fairly obvious and apparent. Um, so that would be, you know, one thing, you know, another thing we could do is, uh, um, just hand out exemptions to say Puerto Rico, uh, Puerto Rico, if, you know, there's a lot of talk about admitting Puerto Rico as a, as a U.S. state. If Puerto Rico was to be admitted, it would be easily the poorest U.S. state on a per capita GDP uh, measurement, poorer than Mississippi by some distance. So why do we have a policy that, just, that says we need a U.S. merchant marine for our military, so we have to use ships, and oh, by the way, we're going to stick a huge portion of the bill to Hawaii, Alaska, and Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico being one of the poorest parts of the United States. That's just... Forget efficiency and everything else. That's just not fair. Um, and, and if this truly is something that's supposed to benefit all Americans for our collective national security, then we should all collectively pay for it equally. And it should not be a burden that is wildly uh, 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 disproportionately put upon uh, these areas like Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico should be exempted. And uh, Puerto Rico is 3 million people. Uh, and it would serve as a nice natural experiment. I think a lot of people, they're, they're, they're concerned or they're hesitant to do such a massive change in policy. Well, we could do this and have it serve as an example. And then we could go back you know, after five years, after 10 years, what has it achieved? What, have there been any shortcomings? What are the lessons learned here? And then if it is the overall positive experience, I think it would be and that would you know, logically generate momentum for, okay, let's extend that to Hawaii. Let's extend that to Alaska. Maybe let's extend it to the rest of the United States. I'm all for incrementalism. What really boggles my mind is that there's been absolutely zero progress for so long in the face of policy that is such a manifest failure um, in, in so many ways. Yeah, uh, I was talking with uh, the head of the Nuclear Commission for the Marshall Islands, uh, Ria Moss Christian. And she said that uh, the agreement between the Marshall Islands and the United States is manifestly and accurate. Oh, I'm sorry, manifestly um, uh, incomplete or what did she say? Uh, inadequate, manifestly inadequate. And I would say that that's the same with this. Like from the manifest, from the beginning of this, it was inadequate to what needed to be done. Uh, and and I think I love the idea of using this kind of incrementalism with Puerto Rico because you know as our further uh, climate change reality and economic, or I'm sorry, eco, uh, ecological collapse becomes more apparent. Puerto Rico is going to feel that the, the most, uh, or one of the most of any of the uh, areas because it's, you know, an island. So rising seas, uh, rising seas, it's in a hurricane zone. Warmer oceans means more hurricanes, more intense hurricanes. Um, and giving them a little bit of relief in the means of getting them goods. I mean, even with the, the hurricane that hit there, one of the big problems was logistics and getting people there. Sure. Um, you know, like uh, I was reading something of, of they had no shortage of volunteers, like people were able to fly in, get off the plane. But then when they were going to wherever they were reporting to volunteer and help, they would get there and there'd be no, no supplies, um, which I'm curious, you know, I'm curious how much this had to play with it. Uh, I would imagine it had something to play with it and not being able to get any goods out there. Um, so that's really, that's really interesting. I think it's a great point. Um, do, do you have any other thoughts as far as like uh, I don't things that the government can do to stimulate? So the intent of the law is to make sure that we have, you know, in cases of emergency, enough shipping capacity, which we see right now is actually uh, it's actually creating the opposite effect. Because, I mean, if, if you were able to if you needed a, a ship and you bought it from Japan or South Korea or uh, Rotterdam or anywhere else, um, 
all of a sudden, you know, if you needed it, well, it doesn't matter where the ship came from. We have it now and we need it now. Um, so I guess going back to my question, is there anything that the, the intent of the law is to, you know, have us have a stable industry in case of, of emergency? Could you see anything else that we could do to actually create those types of situations as opposed to the situation we're in now where we're kind of fighting a losing battle, except unless you live along the Mississippi Delta? Well, um, I am an advocate for, for repeal of the law, but I also think that it should be uh, paired with the implementation of measures that would actually achieve the aims that the Jones Act is supposed to achieve, like having sufficient shipping, like having you know, a shipbuilding capacity uh, and having mariners to crew our ships in time of war. Uh, I'm not someone that is blind or oblivious to the needs of the US military. And I think that those are legitimate needs that need to be accommodated and provided for. So how do we do this? Uh, well, right now we have, there's already a program called the Maritime Security Program. And what this is, is uh, it's 60 ships and these are non-Jones Act ships. So right now there are 180 US flagged uh, ocean going ships uh, and 96 of those are Jones Act ships, meaning they're US built. There are 84 um, foreign built US flagged ships. Now, because they're foreign built, these are US crewed US flagged ships, but they can't operate within the United States. So these are ships that exclusively operate internationally going between US ports and foreign ports. And that MSP program I mentioned of 60 ships, they're entirely drawn from that pool of 84 foreign built ships. <clears throat> and basically the way it works is each of those ships is paid $5 million a year. And then in exchange for that $5 million, the government reserves the right to call upon that ship and use it in time of war or national emergency. So I would say, let's go to the Pentagon and say, guys, how many ships do you need? How much capacity do you need? And then they say, we need X number of ships. And I say, well, let's make sure we get X number of ships. Uh, um, and whatever that number is, let's fund it with, with subsidies like that. And in fact, I think I'd probably tweak it a little bit and say, okay, uh, we need X number of ships and have companies bid and say, okay, in exchange for X amount of money, I will provide you the ships and, and bid it out like that. Um, Another thing we could do is form like a merchant marine reserve. Like I mentioned very early on in this conversation, it's kind of a guessing game as to how many mariners we would have available in time of war to crew our ships. Uh, in fact, in 2017, there was a report done, I believe for the US Maritime Administration, and they calculated that there would be a shortage. Uh, they said, you know, we have X number of mariners out there. Uh, we need, here's how many we need, and that's a shortage, but they said, this is a best case scenario, assuming all of those mariners actually show up and say, yes, I'm willing to serve because they do serve on a volunteer basis. According to the report, I think the phrase they use is that the actual number is beyond prediction because of that voluntary nature. Well, I don't, I think the US military and national security should be playing a guessing game as to how many mariners we'd have available. So form like a merchant marine reserve where there is some kind of contractual obligation in exchange for you know, some, some kind of, uh, you know, wage or some kind of funding, some kind of subsidy, you receive this money. And then in exchange in time of war, we can grab you and use you, you know, and therefore we eliminate that uncertainty. So these are some of the measures that I think, uh, you know, we should adopt. And then the U.S. built requirement, and we got rid of that. There really is no downside there because, again, 
what's sustaining the U.S. shipbuilding industry to the exist we have it today, it's not the Jones Act. It's those government contracts, and that's not going anywhere. These are, you know, again, this building for the Navy, the Coast Guard. We're going to continue to do that. There's limited downside, and theoretically, it should promote an increased number of ships because if ships get, you know, you can buy them for one-fifth the price, you get more of them. So the price of something goes down, you get more of it. And along with more ships would become more mariners. So that just seems to me to be almost 100% upside. Um, so those are, those are some of the thoughts that, that I have uh, around that. Yeah, that's great. I like that. I like those ideas a lot. The reserve part of it, I think, is a great idea. I'm surprised if we haven't done that before. Uh, and this is not just me dreaming this up. There actually have been people in the past. I think there's like a GAO report I came across from the 1990s that proposed something like this. And it wouldn't even require big money. This, these aren't huge expenditures you're talking about. You know, like, you know, obviously the army, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, you don't need hundreds of thousands of mariners, you know, if we could just get a pool of 10 to 15,000 that we knew would be dependable, that would probably be sufficient for our purposes. So this doesn't have to be some massive expenditure. And I think the gains, the economic gains from Jones Act reform would pay for all this stuff that I'm talking about. So I think it's a, it's just, a, it's just a win, you know, the increased efficiency would pay for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good point too. Um, the other one that you said about like the bidding and, and kind of having this contracted out, um, you know, one of the, the reasons that I am such a proponent of like individual liberties and really maximizing individual freedoms is if you make, if you make everything, if you make the conditions good for individuals, that's actually the most efficient way of having something organized, right? Like it's much more efficient that you have citizens that are paying into taxes or, you know, uh, abiding by some type of common, common fare or common moral order than it is to have police or any other agents or actors come in and kind of make sure that everything is, is held in place. And, and the other thing I would say with that is, you know, when we went to the moon, um, we didn't, we didn't mandate certain things needed to be done certain ways or produced in certain areas. We said like, this is what we're looking to build. This is what we need, who can contract out and do this. And then all of a sudden, all these companies sprang up and then efficiencies were, were gained because it's not, you know, a, a mandate it's, this is what the requirements are and this is what we need. And then we can create something that's better. Um, so I think being able to have the type of setup in this, you know, the, the, the most, um, tragic, in a true Shakespearean tragedy, just to plug Shakespeare again, I've been thinking about Shakespeare a lot, which is really no different than my normal days. Anyways, uh, is this the conditions of this Jones Act, such as they are today, and the poor state in which our fleet is, such as it is today, is actually the best opportunity to improve things to be orders of magnitude exponentially better um, if we can just disrupt the status quo and make an opaque uh, issue come become clear um, and have some type of path forward. But I, I think it requires um, bravery in a rather uh, banal area. And, and banal, not as a sense, is boring. I find this fascinating, but it's banal as in it's, it takes a few, it takes mental effort and narrative to be able to get it to a way that affects me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not super intuitive. Yeah. I think it, it, to me, this is a law that is extremely impactful. And most people don't realize it, most people don't even know it exists. Um, and that, that is, of course, one of the challenges. Uh, on its surface, it's this obscure shipping law, whatever. But then when you really dive into it and dig deep, you go, wow, uh, I think there are major gains to be had here from a change to the policy environment. And that's what has certainly been kind of my experience, at least. At first, you think this is an annoying, silly law. And then the more you dig into it, you think, wow, this is absolutely crazy. And yeah. there are some potentially huge gains uh, to be had here. 
with, with the right uh, policy changes. Yeah, it scares me to think how off, how much that exact playbook that you just said exists across all Absolutely. of Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's another key lesson here is you can't think that, oh, the Jones Act is the one screwed up policy we have. I'm sure this dynamic plays itself out over and over and over again. Uh, yeah. And that, that really is scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, well, I want to get us out here at a decent time. Uh, I, I didn't get to ask you anything about labor because I think that's a, a missing component in here. So I'll at least just plug it. Uh, is that I'm really curious, and maybe next time we talk, I'll, I'll ask you some more questions on the labor side of this, because 75% foreign, I'm sorry, 75% requirements of them being citizens, and the other 25% had to be at least permanent residents, is I believe what you said. Yes. Um, that That's also fascinating to me. Um, I also, just to cue it back up again, I think it's uh, an interesting um, point that American shipbuilders are actually some of the, le- the lowest paid uh, in the world. Um, which probably goes back to how much they're constrained and from capital resources and, and all of that. So um, a lot of interesting stuff. Thank you again for your time uh, before we, we can wrap in a second, but is there anything else you wanted to, to mention while we were on there? No, uh, I think that's about it. Uh, we spent a lot of time digging into this and I really appreciate the opportunity to do such a deep dive. Uh, usually the, the issue is given a fairly superficial treatment and I, I'm, I'm thankful for the ability to, you know, get to, to explore this a little bit more and dive into some of the details. So uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much as well. I appreciate your time as well as uh, talking to me about this. I think this is, you know, as I, as, as I, f- I encourage anyone who's listening to scratch the surface more on policy issues, um, and kind of the narratives that we hear come from politicians or, um, you know, in the wild, which often more often than not, it comes from some special interest group. Once you kind of start scratching and digging a little bit deeper, it starts becoming this, this really interesting narrative. Um, and a lot of the way, reasons why I say that I like watching basketball is because I feel, feel like the narrative that unfolds is often stranger than what we can write. I think the same is, is true of policy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I'm going to stop the recording, but thank you very much. Thank you.